We've been hanging out in the names of Jesus. For those of you who are new with us today, welcome. Glad you're here. Merry Christmas. We've been looking at just a few of the names, and he, Jesus actually has 133 names. It's interesting because if you go to a lot of different countries, unlike in ours, in ours, you know, you get three. That's pretty much it. Uh, some people, like Carrie and I, we, we're a little confused. Um, not sure that we we're going to have any more children. So we threw Annie uh, just a bunch of names, and so she has quite a few. Around the world, when you have multiple names, it means you're more important. So at 133, Jesus is it, King of the Hill. And so what we wanted to do today is just in, in a shorter way, kind of vignettes, we'll be back and forth today, is talk about three of them. And I just said, Pastor Jeff, just grab two that you love, two that are just like, ah. And I'm, I'm going to take one that is really obscure. It's, it's not mentioned, but it, it actually technically just kind of once in the scripture, but maybe because of a certain author that we all know well, has been popularized beyond imagination. And so what we're going to do is kind of go back and forth just a little bit, having fun together. And we have some planned thoughts, and I hope that we jump off of those. Um, I don't know how to talk and sit <laughs> at the same time. Um, so I have to stand up. Um, and move my hands. I had a friend tell me. You're getting ready to go for a fight. Well, I, I had a friend yeah, tell me that um, if I didn't have hands, I'd be mute. Um, so I, I have to stand. Um, the names of, of Jesus, a study on, on the names of Jesus or on the names of God is so important. Um, every time I've done a study like this or began to investigate a, a different name of God or a different name of Jesus, I remember a conversation I had, um, an education I received from a very unlikely person. Uh, it was a jeweler. Um, I had never spent one second worrying about or thinking about diamonds until that day I walked into a jewelry store prepared to buy an engagement ring for my now wife, Tammy. And I got that education that many of us fellas have received, where you learn for the first time about the four C's, the cut, the clarity, the carrot, and the color of the diamond. They always leave out that other C, the cost, <laughs> the cash, the coronary. I mean, there are other, other C's that come along with that. But this jeweler was very kind, and he explained to me how important each of those facets are to the overall brilliance of the diamond. Each cut matters because it allows the light to pass through it and to refract and to, to show the, the brilliance and the glory of the gem. Each facet matters, but there's a cumulative effect. Each facet, as you put them together, it allows the light to shine through and you get that, that brilliant shine uh, of, the, of the diamond. And the same is true when you talk about the various names of, of Jesus. Each name individually matters. They're, they're amazing on their own. But as we study the different names, I believe what we do is we add to the brilliance and the glory of who Jesus is because Jesus is the most brilliant, multi-faceted jewel that any of us could ever imagine. So today on Christmas morning, what name could be more appropriate to talk about than Emmanuel, the name that we have sung about in our songs this morning? Emmanuel, what does that mean? It means God with us. And if you're like me, when you hear the name Emmanuel, you, you instantly think, or at least I instantly think, of the manger scene. 
I have some friends who actually wait until Christmas morning to put baby Jesus in the nativity scene because that's when God moved toward us and he became Emmanuel. Well, it's easy to think of Emmanuel as a little baby lying in a manger wrapped in cloths. But that's only part of the story. That first Christmas was an amazing thing. It was an amazing night because everything was about to change. It was so important that angels heralded his birth. It was so important that a bunch of shepherds, a bunch of random guys busted into the, uh, the stable to see the Christ child. This birth was so amazing that this young girl, Mary, she sat back and one of my favorite verses in the whole Christmas story is that one simple verse that says, Mary pondered the scene and she treasured up these things in her heart. Can't you just see that image of this young girl who was given this overwhelming responsibility to bring the Christ child, the promised Messiah into the world and then to raise him up so that he might die on the cross and provide salvation for all of mankind. And when it happened, when he was born, she just kind of sat back and she took this whole scene in and she pondered what this might all become. And she treasured that in her heart. That first Christmas mattered and it was so important that baby Jesus, Emmanuel, became God with us. But friends, God with us is not a new concept. God with us has been a concept that permeates all of scripture. Nobody ever actually referred to Jesus as Emmanuel. When he came walking up to him, they didn't say, hey, what's up, Emmanuel, how you doing? Emmanuel was more of a title. It was more of a representation of his nature, of his character. Emmanuel has been a concept from Genesis to Revelation. Moses needed to be reminded about Emmanuel. When he was afraid to face Pharaoh, he had a task that seemed insurmountable to him. He was overwhelmed by the enormity of that task. And what did God do? God said, Moses, you're not going to be alone. I will be Emmanuel for you. I will be with you. Don't be afraid. Joshua was facing a battle that he felt like there was no chance he could win. He felt alone and he felt overwhelmed by, by this battle that was facing him. And what did God do for Joshua? Joshua said, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid because the Lord your God will be with you. Joshua, I will be Emmanuel for you. I will be with you in the midst of this battle that seems insurmountable. You see, this concept of God with us is not a new idea. Friends, I don't want us to leave Jesus, Emmanuel, in the manger. Because he is God with you right now. Jesus is Emmanuel with you in the midst of whatever challenge seems overwhelming to you. Jesus is Emmanuel right now for you and for I, no matter what battle we're facing that we feel like are insurmountable odds. And Emmanuel is God with us in our darkest hour and in our greatest moment of celebration. The thing that changed that night, that incarnation night, what really changed is God moved toward us in a relational way. 
Never before had God been seen in physical form. John chapter 1 tells us that God put on flesh and dwelt among us. That's what that first Christmas was about. It was about God making an intentional relational move toward us so that you and I would experience Emmanuel in a personal, tangible, physical way. The transcendent God who was just this powerful force became imminent, became personal. Emmanuel, God with us, is a present reality for you and I, not just baby Jesus in a manger. Let's move him from the manger into our lives. Let's do what the angels did and tell others about him. Let's react like the shepherds did and expect great things as we pursue him. And let's react like Mary did, who treasured every moment she had with him as we make him known and present him to the world. Emmanuel, yes, is God with us in the manger and today in our very lives. When I was a kid, it was the first time that I ever entertained the idea that God could be symbolized by something. I began reading, like probably a lot of you, C.S. Lewis's work, Chronicles of Narnia, and I fell in love with Aslan. I liked it so much that I went out, I don't know if it was my mom that got it for me or if I got one myself, but I remember on my wall was the largest poster I could ever get of a lion. I looked at it every day, went to bed with it every night, woke up every morning and was reminded. At that point in my life, to be honest with you, I had no clue it was in the Bible. I just knew C.S. Lewis had a handle on Aslan. And then when I went back into the scriptures in Genesis, it's not mentioned much, but it, Jacob first speaks to his son, Judah, and says, you're the little lion cub. And Judah, that tribe that would come out of Jacob's son, would be considered the kingly tribe. So let's fast forward to Revelation. There's a strange, to me strange, kind of scenario that's happening. I take it it's in heaven. It's towards the end and the seals are being broken and the the end times are coming. And and all of heaven, it says, is weeping. John is weeping. He's receiving this revelation. And, And he says, there's no one worthy to open the seals. First time I read it, I remember... Well, of course there is, John. Open your eyes. Jesus is there. Then one of the elders speaks. And as the elder speaks, he says, do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah. It's a fascinating statement. Why? Because the tribe of Judah was the kingly tribe and now this elder is saying the lion who everyone knows is the king of the beast we've known that for centuries it's almost like the elder is saying the king of the kingly tribe is worthy do not weep see the lion of the tribe of Judah the root of David has triumphed. 
And he will be able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then the text takes this, again, bizarre twist. Then I saw a lamb. Now, the elder just called Jesus the lion of the tribe of Judah. John chapter 5 tells us that only Christ is worthy to open the scroll. So we know that you put those two together and he's saying that Christ is the king of the kingly tribe. And then he says, then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain. What does a lamb look like that's been slain? I don't want to be gruesome on Christmas morning, but there's going to be blood. It's going to have a wound. Standing in the center of the throne and circled by the four living creatures and the elders. And he had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all of the earth. And he came and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down and worshiped the lamb. It's almost like God won't let the name, the lion, last long until he introduces the lion that becomes a lamb. I love the picture of a lion. The only time any of us ever feel comfortable in the presence of a lion is if that lion is on the other side of a wall that we can peer through. And much like in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, when asked, is he safe? Oh, he's not safe. You know the lion, don't you? But he is good. Why is the lion good? Because the lion becomes a lamb. And what does that lamb do? Number one, he teaches us that the greatest power you and I are ever going to have is like Christ is in our suffering and in our sacrifice. The greatest power of a lion is not to be fierce and to destroy but is to become a lamb and to die. Now, I don't like that. I like the fierce part. But the greatest power your life is ever going to have is like Christ. When you take your strength and you sacrifice it, when you take your position and you dismiss it, when you take the opportunities of your power and you set it aside, Because when the lion became a lamb is when he saved you. And that's true of your life. It's true of mine. That the greatest power you and I ever have is when we take the strength and the position that we've been entrusted by God and we sacrifice it for others. But the lion also teaches us That because of his fierceness, he has the capacity to destroy things. And the text tells us, then the end will come and he will hand over the kingdom of God, the kingdom to God, the father. And after he has destroyed all dominion, authority and power, 
For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. You go over to the hospital today and there's going to be people who die. Death still reigns. It does. It reigns on this earth. You, you, you get sick and you may not go to the hospital because they're full and they may send you as one of our patients in our church almost had to get sent to Idaho and, and others were looking at Utah. Uh, why? Because death reigns. It has power on this earth. It does. Some of you, this is the first Christmas that you're celebrating without a dear loved friend and it hurts. Why? Because death still has authority on this earth. But the lion that became a lamb, ultimately one day, the scripture says, he will destroy death. And so death, though we grieve, doesn't get the final word. And because of that, at every funeral of a person who follows Christ, and every person who is living this in this world, knowing that this may be the last Christmas, we can say to them with confidence, I'll see you again. Why? Because the lion has power. His power to not only become a lamb and to die, but he has power to destroy. And he has power to give. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from this empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors but with the precious blood of Christ a lamb without blemish or defect last night a little boy went home he was up here on the stage today and he asked his mom and dad I I want Jesus in my heart And he looked up at him and said, can you help me? (laughs) They're putting all the pieces together of the gospel. Little Thomas trusted Christ. Why? Because a lion became a lamb. Jesus' greatest power is when he sacrificed his strength so the little boy could receive him. You will exercise your greatest power when you take your position, the resources, and all that God has entrusted to you and find ways to sacrifice it and to give your life away for others. That's what the lion teaches us. He uses his fierceness to become a lamb so that you can live. Such an interesting concept. It almost doesn't make sense, right? Because if you're the apex animal, if you're the lion, who would ever condescend to being a vulnerable lamb? Well, Jesus would. This is the same one who gave up heaven in order to come to earth. Jesus is the one, when he came to earth and he spoke about a kingdom, he said, my kingdom is not going to be like what you're used to. Because in my kingdom, the way to get higher is to actually get lower. We've been on a journey looking at different names of Jesus. We started with Jesus, Christ, the Lord, Emmanuel, Lion of Judah. 
And the last one that we want to end with today is the Prince of Peace. The Prince of Peace is such an interesting name because of the timing in which this title was given to Jesus. This title was given to Jesus by the prophet Isaiah during a time of intense war and suffering for the nation of Israel. This wasn't a good time for the nation of Israel. They were experiencing God's discipline. God used the Assyrians to, to discipline Israel for their disobedience. And in the middle of this, this time of war, right after Isaiah talks about um, the, the um, bloody garments and the, the warrior's boots, he's talking about this imagery of war. He drops this hint that there's going to be this child born who's going to be this wonderful counselor, a mighty God, the prince of peace. In a time of great suffering and war, the prophet Isaiah creates the sense of longing and anticipation for the people that they would look forward to a better day. And then 700 years later, Emmanuel bursts onto the scene. Jesus is born. Galatians chapter four says in the fullness of time or at the perfect time, Jesus was born. Isaiah 700 years earlier in a time of great war and chaos and suffering predicted. He said, hey, look forward, anticipate, long for that day that a prince of peace will come and his kingdom will be enduring. It will last forever. And when was Jesus born? Jesus was born at a perfect time. Jesus was born at the height of what is called the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. He was born at maybe one of the most peaceful times in human history. Why? Because the Roman Empire was the biggest, baddest dude on the block and people just said, okay, fine, you can be in charge. There was a relative time of peace. The Prince of Peace was born during a time where he really didn't need to come and settle skirmishes. Jesus didn't come and say, hey guys, quit fighting with each other. Let me, let me fix everything. Let me create this really peaceful ecosystem. There already was a peaceful ecosystem. But Jesus always did things differently. The lion became a lamb. That makes no sense. Jesus had a pathway to peace, but it was different than a temporal, secular peace that you and I might think of initially. What did Jesus do? He had a pathway toward peace. What was one of the first things he did? He walks into the Roman Empire and he starts talking about a new kingdom. That was kind of unsettling for those that were in charge. Caesar didn't necessarily appreciate someone talking about another kingdom because no one's going to overthrow my kingdom. I'm the boss. Take your place, sit down and be quiet. Because if you don't, you're gonna wind up on a cross, which is exactly where he wound up. The first thing Jesus did was create a little political unrest. He talked about a kingdom and he allowed himself to be referred to as a king. The next thing he did is he went to the religious elite and he said, hey fellas, I know you think you got it all figured out. I know you think you're doing it right, but you're doing it all wrong. He kind of puts his finger right in the chest of the religious elite. And he said, your religiosity has totally clouded my intention for you. You've begun to become worshipers of the law and you've neglected the lawgiver. 
He called them whitewashed tombs, basically saying externally your behavior looks really good, but inside you're dead. You need to be born again. So on Jesus's pathway toward peace, he creates a little religious unrest. He begins to create some conflict. Then Jesus went out into culture and he started crossing some cultural lines. One day he talked to a Samaritan woman and said, I know you're shunned by everyone else, but you matter to me. He approached a leper and he said to the leper, hey, I know everyone else throws rocks at you to keep you away from them because you're unclean and they want to keep you that way. But leper, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to embrace you. I'm going to move towards you and I'm going to heal you. Then he went to the Gentiles and said, hey, Gentiles, I know that you've always been second-class citizens. I know you've always been told you are less than. I know there's been a, a dividing wall that has always kept you away from the temple, but I'm here to tell you you're included. Jesus wasn't interested in maintaining the status quo. He entered a season of relative peace because there was complacency. Everyone had kind of just settled into their roles. And Jesus says, uh, I'm going to cause some uh, political unrest. I'm going to stir the pot a little bit and create some, some uh, religious unrest. And now I'm going to deal with some societal issues, some social stratification that I don't want to be there. I'm going to create some social unrest. Why? Because he wanted them to have that same sense of longing that Isaiah created 700 years earlier. The people had become complacent and lazy. And Jesus came and said, man, I want you to anticipate. I want you to have a longing for an eternal kingdom. I want you to think about spiritual things because you've gotten so wrapped up in the physical and in the here and now. I want to create a longing for you. I will be your prince of peace, not now. Let Caesar be king for now. I will reign forever. I want you to long for that. I want to stir your hearts to anticipate like you did when Isaiah started this process 700 years ago. The Prince of Peace came to kick off, to launch, to initiate the kingdom. And until his kingdom is fully realized, what do we do? We pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we long for the Prince of Peace to take his rightful spot on the throne. The Prince of Peace will reign forever. And until that day, we should be ever pursuing the deeper things, the spiritual things that he came to talk about. My passport is up this year. I have to renew my passport. And when I go fill out that paperwork, they're going to ask me to give my full legal name. And I'm going to write down three names, Jeffrey Daniel Pausch. And those three names will satisfy the, uh, the State Department, right? That's who authorizes that, the State Department. And they're going to say, that's enough. So I can boil down my entire essence into three names. Jesus needed 133. Why? Three is not enough for that multifaceted jewel. Each facet matters. Prince of Peace, Emmanuel, Lion of Judah, they all matter on their own. But my goodness, you put them together and Jesus shines more brilliantly, more magnificently than anything we could ever imagine. What's our hope for you today? 
Our hope for you today is that you see Jesus more brilliantly than you ever have before. And that you would respond to this Christ child who became the Lion of Judah, who is the Prince of Peace, and who wants to reign in your life now and forever. He moved toward us relationally so that we might know him differently and more intimately. Friends, you're here today because you want more of that in your life. I'm confident of that. May Christmas be that springboard into a new year where you learn and you understand, you comprehend the deeper things of God and you see Jesus more brilliantly than you ever have before.